1: Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello and good week everybody. I hope you've all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I think I already said that on the mini episode, but just in case you didn't listen, I hope you enjoyed your holiday in whatever way, shape, or form that means for you. I just had the last of our Thanksgiving leftovers and it was absolutely delicious the only problem is I still have an entire mason jar full of cranberry sauce because I forgot to bring it with on the actual day of Thanksgiving and it's one of my favorites but now I'm like what the hell am I gonna do with all of this cranberry sauce so if you have any uh cooking tips with cranberry sauce hit me up and let me know and it's not like the canned like gross like I would just throw that out this is like My homemade cranberry sauce that I am very like possessive over and love and yeah, like it's really delicious. So in the beginning of every episode, I like to remind you all that this is a podcast that explores the world through a personal perspective and I wanted to highlight that today because there is so much information on this topic that it would have been very difficult for me within a week to give you the fullest of full picture of the scope of this story and of this tragedy. And I'm gonna do my best to give you the best account of history that I've been able to type up for you and write out for you. I'm going to do my best to give you the best account of what happened through what I've written down, but I'm sure that there are many, many things that I've missed. So like always, if this becomes a topic that you are fascinated by, I guess fascinated in this sense is kind of stats, so maybe horrified by, and still want to know more about because this is an important story, um, I would highly recommend that you do so. And I also want to give a... Bit of a trigger warning at the top because a lot of what I'm discussing will be involving child abuse today because I am going to be telling you all about the Canadian Native Residential Schools. So the first time that I'd ever heard about these Native Residential Schools in Canada was back in 2021 during the pandemic when an anthropologist discovered the presence of 200 unmarked graves on the site of Kamloops Residential School. And I believe that we covered this story in a mini episode when it broke, you know, around that time. And I was very shocked and horrified that I wasn't aware that there were essentially these like child concentration camps being built in Canada and so on and so forth. And it's one of those topics that I've had on the list for a really long time, and I think because it is Native American Heritage Month, even though these were not American, you know, North American schools, it was up in Canada, I still think it's really important to talk about this because I think that from what I've read, there were a lot of parallels being drawn in schools in the United States as well. I mean, I don't see why not. Canada and the U.S. are so close, especially the north, things like that. So especially in these early years of Canada and so on and so forth, it wouldn't surprise me if the United States was perpetrating a lot of these similar crimes against Native Americans, um, maybe in schools, maybe not. But and I'm going to just keep saying this. This is such a tragic story. The Kamloop School was established in 1893 in British Columbia. It was at the time the largest Canadian residential school with hundreds of children attending, many forcibly removed from their homes. The school's attendance peaked in the early 1950s with 500 students at the time. In the late 90s, a child's tooth was found on the grounds of the school. Then in the early 2000s, a tourist discovered a small rib bone looking like it belonged to a child on the grounds, leading to further archaeological tests. Then, of course, like I mentioned in 2021, this one archaeologist in particular went and discovered using ground penetrating radar... Uh, the existence of the 200 unmarked graves. As of May 2022, debates are ongoing as to whether to conduct an archaeological exhumation of potential human remains, or whether to leave the site undisturbed. And personally, I think that the best people to make that decision would be people who were closest to the people that went to the school, you know, whether that be family who's still alive, descendants, so on and so forth. I think that that's something that needs to be discussed throughout the community and not by the canadian government because the canadian government fucked it all up in the first place so sorry anyway com has an interesting place in canada's history as a whole as well because in 1962 com loops produced the film the eyes of children which was a christmas special which showed native children praying singing and learning about the tenets of christianity in one scene you see the kids learning about what christmas is then getting ready for a christmas recital at school putting on costumes the video also captures Gerald Matthew Moran, or Moran, I'm not really sure. He's a moron, so it doesn't matter, who was found to have been abusing children at the school. Gerald was the boy's supervisor at Kamloops, and in the 60s, he was charged with several dozen sex crimes and spent—how many years do you think he spent in jail? Let's think about it for a second. He spent three years in jail. Chew on that. But Kamloops was far from the only school to have been hiding on marked graves, 72 unmarked graves were discovered in the 70s at the Battleford Industrial School in Saskatchewan. In 2001, heavy rains revealed 34 coffins near the Dunbau Residential School. And in 2019, archaeologists found 15 crudely dug graves at the Miskawakwan Residential School. So now that I've covered a bit about Comloops, which is probably the most well-known school in this story, I want to go into more of the specifics about what life was like living in these residential schools and what these children went through, what the parents went through, what the government was planning, so on and so forth. And I wanted to say that most of the information I've obtained came directly from the testimonies of survivors, which was part of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's files, which I will be attaching in the show notes it's incredibly fascinating they're all in pdf form and you can read every bit of testimony that came out years after these horrendous schools were closed in summary beforehand the residential school survivor testimonies tell stories of children digging graves for their classmates of unmarked burials on school grounds and of children disappearing under mysterious circumstances as well as what their day-to-day lives looked like at the schools So let's get a little bit of history into how all of this came to be. The Canadian government gained control over indigenous land and its peoples upon the conception of the new country, disrupting their governments and economies and fighting to repress indigenous cultures and spiritual practices. The government, working with the country's major religious organizations, sought to, quote, civilize, Christianize, and ultimately assimilate indigenous people into Canadian society. The Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs in 1920 predicted that within a century, thanks to the work of these schools, Indigenous people will cease to exist in Canada. They said that in 1920, and they were so aware of these schools, yet they continued to go on. Like That just kind of clicked with me, and that is so disgusting. So this is pretty nuts to me, and maybe I'm a big dummy for not knowing this, but apparently Canada wasn't a country until 1867. For some reason, like, that just seems like such, it's such a young country. Oh my gosh. Um, But before Canada was its own country, churches had already been running boarding schools for indigenous children. Catholic and Protestant missionaries established missions and small boarding schools throughout the West. The relationship between the government and the church was solidified in 1883 when the federal government decided to establish three large residential schools in Western Canada. And for some families, when these schools first came available, some of them really felt like this was going to be a valuable experience for the children to go and get an education, but they were very uncomfortable with the idea of having their children taken from their homes, which of course I can understand, especially if that has never been part of your culture before, to send your child off for education. And the reason it was decided to build boarding schools instead of building the schools near the children's homes was because the government believed that breaking the bonds between the parent and the child would help them assimilate the next generation. Of course, the younger the child is and you take them out of their current situation and completely change it, the more likely you are to essentially brainwash them early enough to inhabit some of those new characteristics that you're forcing upon them. Essentially, children are just so innocent and vulnerable and that's why this story is, it was honestly very, very hard for me to read a lot of these stories, so I am going to do my best. What's also just so upsetting within what i just said is that it's it's really hard for me to understand how anyone can feel like their way of being is superior in any way so superior in fact that you're then going to force everybody else to be exactly like you, and you're okay with then annihilating an entire culture within a generation. The thought process behind that is so disgusting. And I know that this is only one instance where that has been thought of. I know that, you know, of course, Hitler was a big one. And there's been a lot of other terrible people in this world that have thought similarly. But learning about it again and again, and reading it again and again, doesn't necessarily make the blow any softer. So a child would decide if they were going to one of these schools, if a letter showed up at their home, most of the time it was brought to them in person by a priest or government official and in many instances when parents showed resistance to letting their children go they were threatened with jail or prison time and this was a threat for both the parent and the child. The child would then feel really really guilty and be like of course take me like I don't want my parents to go to jail and the parent would be really terrified because maybe they had other children to take care of. Maybe they had other responsibilities or jobs and things like that. They, they 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 didn't want to go to jail, and maybe they just thought, you know, I have to trust. I have to trust that everything is going to be okay because how can you imagine that your child would be sent somewhere where they would be abused? So out of fear of being imprisoned, they would let their children go. And like I had mentioned a bit ago, some of these kids thought that the idea of going to school was really exciting and they wanted to go to school and get an education. Some kids talked about in the testimonies, you know, wanting to learn English so they could be bilingual and maybe get a job elsewhere and things like that. And I think that that's really smart. In other cases, poverty led families unable to feed and clothe their children. So they would send their children to the schools believing that Taking them to these schools would give them things that the family couldn't provide for them. Let's move on to the journey to the schools. Frederick Ernest Coe recalled a knock at his parents' door one day, asking for him to pack up because he had to go. Quote, And I didn't get to say goodbye to my mom or dad or brother Alan. Didn't get to pet my dogs or nothing. You know, we're going. Marched over to Frankie's house, which was just half a block away, and picked him up. And then we marched to the plane, just like we're criminals, you know, marching to this policeman to get on the plane. It was a pretty monumental point in my life. Very dramatic, I guess. You don't realize this until after, because those times, you just did what the people in charge told you to do. Howard Stacy Jones was taken without his parents' knowledge from a public school in British Columbia to the Cooper Island School. He says, quote, I was kidnapped from Port Renfrews Elementary School when I was around six years old. And this happened right in the elementary schoolyard. And my auntie witnessed and another non-native witnessed this, and they are still alive as I speak. These are two witnesses trying, saw me fighting, trying to get away with from the two RCMP officers that threw me in the back seat of the car and drove off with me. And my mom didn't know where I was for three days, frantically stressed out and worried about where I was. And she finally found out I was in Cooper Island's residential school. Dorothy Hart was also six years old when she and a friend were playing by a lake when a plane landed right near them. Can you imagine? She says, quote, my friend took off first and this guy just grabbed me and put me on the plane. And there were other kids on the plane already. When students weren't packed onto a plane, students were packed into farm trucks like sardines. Some of these kids would travel in the trucks for days, picking up other children along the way toward the school. Unfortunately, when the children arrived, the abuses seemed to begin immediately. Their hair was cut, their traditional clothing was swapped out for school uniforms, and Native names were changed to Euro-Canadian ones. They were also given a number. A girl named Nellie was taken to the Sioux Lookout School in Ontario in the 1950s, and she was there throughout the 50s and 60s. In the reports, she recalls her first few days at the school. When we arrived, we had to register that we had arrived then they took us to cut our hair. The next thing was to get our clothes. They gave us two pairs of jeans, two pairs of t-shirts, two church dresses, two pairs of shoes, two pairs of socks, two pairs of everything. Forgot to say this before the start of the quote, but trigger warning for this next part of the story. And we had a number. They gave us a number, and that number was tied in all of our clothes. After that, we were told to be in the go in the shower. At least 15 of us girls in one shower. We were told to strip down and with all the other girls, and that was not a comfortable feeling. And for me, I guess, it was violating my privacy. I didn't even want to look at anybody else. It was hard. After that, they gave us our toothbrushes to brush our teeth, and they asked us to put our hands out, and they put some white dry powder stuff on our hands. I didn't know what it was. I smelt it, but now today I know it was baking soda. The cutting of the hair in particular was something that a lot of survivors and their testimonies discussed, such as Bernice Jacks, and when she was a kid, she loved her long hair being brushed and braided by her mother. But when she arrived at a residential school in the Northwest Territories, a staff member sat her in a stool and cut her hair. She says, quote, I sat there and I could hear, I could see my hair falling and I couldn't do nothing. And I was so afraid my mom wasn't even thinking about myself I was thinking about mom I say mom's gonna be really mad and June is gonna be angry and it's gonna be my fault upon arrival many of the children were also terrified by the sight of the nuns in their full nun gear because they had never seen them before and they weren't very nice either so of course these women became terrifying creatures for them the second they came to the school and I gotta say, in my experience, nuns can be fucking scary. When the children arrived, males and females and siblings were separated, with few exceptions. Margaret Simpson attended Fort Chippeway in school in the 1950s, and this is what she had to say about being separated from her brother, George. Quote, I was happy I was going to be with him, and my dad took us, and there we're walking to, the, to this big orange building. And we got there and I was so happy because I was going to go in here with George and I was going to be with him. But, you know, this was far as it was going to go once we made it in there. He went one way and I was calling him and this other nun took me the other way. So we were separated right there. I was so lost. The schools themselves were nothing to write home about either. They were built hastily and cheaply and they had poor to non-existent sanitation and ventilation systems. There were few infirmaries built, and infections were common amongst the kids, so epidemics quickly spread throughout the school with deadly results. For the first half of the 20th century, the schools ran a, quote, half-day system where classes were taught in one half of the day, and the other half was spent on, quote, vocational training, more like child labor. Boys often learned farming and other farming-related crafts that they would need to know, and the girls were trained in, quote, domestic sciences because they're girls. We have weak arms and can't work on farms. Daily life was nothing short of militaristic for these kids attending the schools. One student recalls waking up every morning and before anything else, kneeling down and saying their prayers, prayers that had been taught to them by the nuns. After prayer, they often had to get right to their chores before attending breakfast, where, again, they would say grace. After breakfast, they would do more chores then they would head off to school. When it came to chores... Eileen Napoose said, We kind of run the school based on our own labor. We washed, we cleaned, they hired ladies to cook. There were no janitors. We were the janitors. And it wasn't the case with every school that they would even hire a cook. Another student from another school recalls having to learn to cook, as well as learn to do laundry, how to iron, sweep, and whatever else was needed to maintain the school and the girls living there. All in all, these kids' time was so regimented that they had no time to just be kids. And not only was this incredibly taxing and tiring for these children, but the kids would often get hurt while doing their jobs. And they were not equipped with the doctors and nurses necessary to be taking care of that amount of children. And back to the prayer, it sounds like the amount of prayer required daily at residential schools is nothing short of brainwashing. Geraldine Archie said that, quote, They made us pray from morning until night, and we used to pray when we got up in the morning, and pray before we ate breakfast, and then pray again before we went and started class, and pray again when we went home, went downstairs for lunch, and prayed again to go to afternoon class, and then prayed again before supper, prayed again before bedtime. I was always kneeling down, and I developed calluses on my knees. These calluses were actually given the nickname boarding school knees. And the reason I mentioned brainwashing is because... That's literally what the government and religious bodies were trying to do to these kids. They wanted them to completely wipe out their old way of being and assimilate to a white way of life. And the threat of not assimilating was huge. Fred Bass remembers in his school in Saskatchewan having a picture of a set of stairs, and at the bottom of the stairs were Native people, and they were on fire. Above the stairs were Jesus and the angels, and they were told that if they don't change their ways, they will end up in the fire let's talk a little bit about gender relations at the school. The policy of separating male and female siblings was part of a larger policy of separating boys and girls at large. Of course, this didn't prevent the young students from doing everything they could in order to see either siblings or friends of the opposite sex. And once they hit puberty, romantic interests would bloom, and some rules were broken. Of course, this wasn't without extreme punishment, so the dangers they were facing in seeing someone that they had a crush on was huge. In some schools, if you practically grew up there, in order for you to get out of the school, they would perform arranged marriages for you. There was a young woman by the name of Violet who was still on the residential school campus at the age of 21 in 1953, which, such an old maid, we must marry her off, But Violet was an orphan, so there were no parents for her to return to and nowhere for her to go after she turned 18, and that's why she stayed at the school. She says that the school presented her with a number of men, and she rejected one after the other. Eventually, they got so frustrated with her that a priest ordered her that the next man she was set up with, she had to accept a proposal. She goes on in her testimony to talk about her wedding day and her memory of that, And she says that to this day, she can't remember everything about her ceremony because everything happened so fast and against her will that it's a really hard thing for her to remember and think back on. I wish I knew more about her story and what happened to her after she was forced to be married. Of course, the jobs at these schools were not necessarily sought after by teachers in the communities, and it was really hard to find teachers to fill the positions at the schools. So many of the churches didn't require the same level of teacher training that was expected in a normal Canadian public school. And anyway, for most of the students, academic success at these institutions was rare. The government and teachers mandated that only English, or in Quebec, French, to be spoken at the schools, and if they were overheard speaking in their native language, they would be punished. On top of that, the government had no clear policy on discipline for the majority of the times that these schools were open, so it was left to the priests and the nuns and the other people in authority as to how they wanted to deal with the discipline of these children. And now I want to get into a little bit about the abuse that these children would endure. Major trigger warning for this next section, please listen with caution. Brian Ray said that he and the other boys attending Fort Francis in Ontario were given a physical inspection by female staff upon entering the grounds. Brian told an absolutely horrible story of a time when a female staff member terribly abused and humiliated him. I'm not going to get into the whole story because this in particular was one that I had to scroll through a bit, but I did get a little bit of information and I feel like it's important to describe a little bit of what happened so that you can understand the severity of the abuse that these children went through. So again, young Brian has just attended school and he is being examined by a female staff member who then asked him to undress. And the staff member then sort of began messing with him and coming on to him a little bit and kind of trying to tease him, which made Brian feel really embarrassed and confused and didn't understand what was going on. There were lots of other boys in the room who would also be receiving inspections, and it didn't matter. This staff member sexually assaulted Brian in front of all of the other children, which Brian said made him feel, quote, dirty. In his report, he said, So I think that was the first time I ever felt humiliated by my sexuality. Students were strapped and humiliated, in some cases handcuffed, manacled, beaten, locked in cellars and other makeshift jails, or displaced in stocks. And something that is far too common with children experiencing abuse is bedwetting. And bedwetting was a major problem amongst residential schools, which was most likely the cause of being taken by their parents and placed in a strange and highly disciplined environment, which is also abusive and violent. The schools would use shame as a way to, quote, cure bedwetting, which was never going to work because the shame that we're feeling only amplified all the other shitty things going on in their young lives, progressing the bedwetting even further. If you don't know much about this because you don't have a child or you didn't go through this yourself, so on and so forth, bedwetting is commonly a sign that a child may have been sexually abused in particular, but abuse in general can manifest itself in a child wetting the bed. It's usually a sign that there's something else going on, you know, from zero to ten in severity. It, It doesn't necessarily always mean that a child is being sexually assaulted if they struggle with bedwetting, but it is usually a sign that there's something else going on under the surface that needs to be addressed. And I can't think of a single therapist or doctor or, you know, medical professional anywhere saying that shame (laughs) would be a great way to cure bedwetting. It doesn't make any sense at all. So like I said, it would just perpetuate the problem and make it worse. And shame would build on shame, would build on shame. A common form of punishment would be for students to be sent into a basement cellar or something similar, you know, some sort of like, almost like jail cell situation typically below the school, and students would be sent down there for wetting the bed, which sounds absolutely terrifying. In some schools, the bathrooms were locked at night, and in some, children were denied water at night to help them not wet the bed. Reports of sexual abuse at the time of the school's operation was, of course, almost non-existent to non-existent. But over the last 40 years or so, the abuse has come to light. Former students reported assaults from staff members of both the opposite and same-sex as themselves. At times, sexual abuse was used as a form of discipline and punishment. Survivors also recalled staff watching them as they bathed. As is the case with many stories of abuse, many times a staff member would show a child a kindness that they hadn't seen in a while to gain their trust before abusing them. This example makes me think of Larry Nassar with the U.S. Women's Gymnastics Team because the coaches of the U.S. Women's Gymnastics Team are so rigid and horrible and, you know, would starve their athletes and, you know, mentally and physically abuse them essentially by the way they were treated during their training and things like that. And and these girls would get really, really beaten down, but Larry Nassar, the doctor, would, like, sneak snacks and you know give them positive reinforcement and he was also their doctor and he was helping you know make them feel better so there there did become this sort of bond and trust between him and these girls and that's how he was able to gain their trust enough to abuse them and this was very common with a lot of the adults that were around the children at these residential schools you know these people are Predators, And they know what they're doing. And in my opinion, the scariest type of predator is someone who is like a wolf in sheep's clothing, where you just don't see it coming. And maybe they're so kind. And for these children who are taken away from their parents and everything they know, to maybe be shown some love and affection in some way, it would be pretty easy for them to maybe want to spend time alone with that adult and think that it's okay. I did read stories, however, of the older kids protecting the younger kids after they themselves had experienced abuse, which is so sad, but also so brave and commendable. The older kids would stay up and they would watch over the children and make sure that, you know, the staff wouldn't come in at night and so on and so forth so that they could protect them. Some of the survivors never reported their abuse out of fear of not being believed, of course. Students who did report abuse were told they were to blame for what happened to them. Others were simply too ashamed to take action against their abuser. But luckily, there were so many survivors who decided to fight back and share their stories in their testimonies. Alright, I need to take a quick break. Let's listen to some commercials.
0: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, we're back. I know this is a sad one, but stay with me. Let's talk a little bit about the emotional abuse that was endured by the children at these residential schools. Many of the survivors speak of the fear that was instilled into them when they were very young kids. Of course there was fear. They were terrified. I cannot imagine being a child, especially being as close to my mom as I was, being ripped away and sent far, far away and having no way of contacting her, not knowing when I'm going to see her, and being told that the way that I was was wrong on top of that can be incredibly frustrating and fearful. Even though there were so many kids squished together into such close proximity, the survivors speak of still feeling absolutely alone. Jack Anahuac recalls his time at Chesterfield Inlet in the 1950s saying that, quote, there was no love. There was no feelings. It was just supervisory. For the nuns that were in there, it was just they supervised us. They told us what to do. They told us when to do it. And they told us how to do it. And we didn't even have to think. We didn't even have to feel Unfortunately, some students took drastic measures in order to free themselves from their situation, and many students eventually would take their own lives. Thankfully, by the 1940s, federal officials concluded that the system was too expensive and ineffective to continue, and the federal government began building more schools on the reserves. So it had nothing to do with the horrible abuse that was being uncovered and the terrible stories that were being told and the upset indigenous families or anything like that. No, no, no. They just got a little too expensive. Because you know what? It takes a hell of a lot of money to raise thousands of children, you fucking assholes. And I totally forgot to add this into my notes, but food shortage was a really, really big deal at this school, and food was typically bartered when it came to, to the authorities at the school and the government, and they would want more money elsewhere, so they would cut their spending on the children's food. They also would rarely give the kids new clothes. They weren't given what they needed for proper hygiene, so on and so forth. In the 1950s, there were agreements with the government that local school boards should allow Indigenous children to be educated along with the rest of the Canadian children in public schools. Of course, a lot of these stories came from the 1940s through the 1960s. So these schools were still basically alive and well for a very long time, even after the government started pulling away from these quote unquote projects. The last federally operated residential schools didn't close until the 1990s. In the 50s, the federal government initiated its policy of integrating indigenous students into local public schools. Many of the survivors who were then forced to go into yet another new school recalled a cold reception upon starting public school. Kids are mean, and the bullying was as bad as you can imagine it being especially for a kid who was a different skin color than the rest of her classmates in the 1950s. Martina Therese Fisher talked about her years in Winnipeg Public High Schools after leaving a residential school, saying, quote, The teachers never talked to me. Students never talked to me. I felt singled out. After the schools began closing, former students began coming out with their experiences in the schools, leading to both criminal charges against sexual abusers, but also launching class action lawsuits against the churches and federal government. The cases were resolved in the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, which was the largest class action settlement in Canadian history, which went into effect, which went in effect, in two thousand seven. I can't believe it took that long. Payments were then made to former students along with additional compensations for those who suffered serious personal harm. Something else that came up in a lot of the stories, of course, how this all began, were the deaths of their fellow classmates. It suggested that between 3,200 and 6,000 students died while attending Canadian Native residential schools. Of course, the exact number is unknown due to shoddy record-keeping. There are comparatively few cemeteries listed with the residential schools, though we know that most of the schools did, in fact, have a cemetery on the premises. Most of the cemeteries were unregistered, making the burial sites of so many children lost to time. And many parents would actually never find out if their children passed away, or if they went missing or disappeared, or what happened to them. Because the schools nor the government would contact the families and let them know if their child were ill or passed away. Like I mentioned at the beginning, since the 1970s, bodies, unmarked graves, and potential burial sites have been discovered near residential school sites across Canada. And the one thing I hope you were thinking through all of this is what was the cause of death? Sadly, it was bad living conditions and a lot of disease. Conditions at the schools were the leading reason for the death. In 1907, Indian Affairs Chief Medical Officer Peter Bryce visited 35 schools in Western Canada and reported that 25% of all the children who had attended these schools had died. Again, this is back in 1907. How did these schools survive until the 1990s? I must know. This guy visited 35 schools and reported that 25% of all of the children who had attended these 35 schools had died on the premises. In one school alone, that number was 69%. That is a 69% death rate for sending your child to school. Archival records detailed inadequate medical facilities, non-existent isolation rooms for the sick and contagious, and a serious lack of nurses and other medical professionals on site to care for these sick children. And as I mentioned when talking about budgeting, food was always short for these kids. And to get technical, malnutrition decreases your immune system, making it even easier for these kids to get sick. Many of the kids would fall ill of tuberculosis, and studies have consistently shown that malnutrition leads to significantly higher mortality rates amongst infected individuals. And the thing that is so enraging about all of this is that the government was well aware that these children were being left hungry the per capita federal grant provided for food in most schools was often half of that required to maintain a balanced diet. And that's how it all happened. It's incredibly sad for me to think that from the beginning of Canada's existence until the time that I was born, the government allowed what I would consider these child concentration camps to exist in Canada. There were so many records telling people in charge that this wasn't okay, that there were things wrong. Children were dying. Children were getting sick. They were not being taken care of. They were being sexually abused, mentally abused, neglected. They were being forced to completely change the people that they were at their core. A lot of these kids talk about going home between school years or coming home for good after they were done with their schooling and feeling absolutely isolated from the culture and family that they once felt so close to. I can't imagine how the survivors from these schools feel. I can't imagine what they had witnessed, especially being around so much death. And there's no way that these kids didn't know what was going on, because they truly were packed in like sardines into these schools. And there was no quarantine room or anything like that. These kids were just left together. I'm sure seeing their friends die right before them at a very young age. And another thing that just makes me so unbelievably angry is the fact that the people in authority didn't think it was important enough to figure out who this child was, find their families, find their parents, tell them what happened so that they could have some sense of closure. What kind of torture is it for a parent to have to wait for the rest of their lives, never knowing what happens to their child? I get choked up when I say it out loud, because I cannot imagine the feeling of unknowing. I hope that whatever decision is made for these unmarked graves that have been found, I hope that they are able to find peace, comfort within the people that they love. And I hope that this can be an example that is set so something like this never happens again. I think far too often when we hear these stories through history, and this isn't even like history long ago, we think that of course something like this would never happen again. We would never treat our children like this. Well, and maybe it's not happening in the US right now. Maybe it is, and we don't know about it. But I can bet that it's happening someplace in the world. And this is an example of something that we truly do have to fight against. (sighs) Oh, okay. That was a really serious one and no fun. So I'm going to have to think of something extra fun to do for next week because seriously the research for this week was grueling to read but if you do want to read you know longer extended versions of the quotes from the survivors and their stories the PDF files that I will attach in the show notes will give you everything that you're looking for. They are a wealth of information, and I highly recommend giving it a read. I read the whole thing, and, and it was like reading a book. I learned so much, and my heart was broken again and again and again, even just reading these legal documents. If there's a topic that I haven't covered yet on the show and you want to get my take on it, please let me know by emailing me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DMing the podcast Instagram page at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to follow my personal page on Instagram and see what kind of shenanigans I'm up to in my day to day life, you can follow me at is Madigan, S A G S M A D I G A N. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And I haven't gotten a new review in a while, and I cannot tell you how much it truly does help when you leave that little five-star and quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. I know I've mentioned this before, but the reason the little sentence is so important is because if someone's on the fence about listening or is just scrolling through their podcast app and they want to see what other people's opinions are, Maybe something that you have to say will make them want to listen, and I would really appreciate that. You can also rate the show on Spotify. All right, all of you take care of yourselves after listening to this episode. I hope you're okay. That's all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.
0: Sometimes investigative podcasts tell stories that seem almost too weird to be true. So just how wild can a fiction podcast following that same format get? You can find out on Conference Call, a Paradiso Media production presented by Realm. Conference Call follows journalist Charlotte Dunn as she uncovers the story of two entrepreneurs, the Toad Bros., Pieced together from the hilariously cringeworthy phone calls within their company, Charlotte details the incompetence, fraud, and betrayal of this eccentric pair and their unwitting partner who was just looking for her big break in Silicon Valley. Starring Elizabeth Henstridge, Jeff Ward, Gregory Steeves, and Emma Roberts, and featuring guests like Karen Gillan, Beck Bennett, Dimi DiGiwebe, and many more, Conference Call blends the workplace weirdness of The Office with the cadence of a true crime podcast. Be sure to listen and subscribe to Conference Call wherever you get your podcasts or learn more at realm.fm.